Good morning. One reason we have to praise our Lord forevermore, like we just sang, is something that Pastor Bruce said last week. And he said that only in Christianity does the verdict come first and the performance afterwards. Well, I read that very same truth in a biography of Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas this week. I'm working my way through that book. I highly recommend it. And uh, Metaxas was paraphrasing an essay that Martin Luther wrote called The Freedom of the Christian. So he's talking about freedom in Christ, and this is Metaxas paraphrasing Martin Luther. He says this, Once we embrace Christ, we are instantly made righteous because of his righteousness, and not because of anything we have done or could do. So our good works do not earn us God's favor. That favor we already possess. <laughs> That's the verdict. All right, even though we are sinners, and it is now our gratitude to God for this free gift of his righteousness and salvation that makes us want to please him with our good works. That's the motivation for the performance, for living out what is already true of us, stated by Jesus Christ. Now, here's a little tidbit of how Luther talked. This is kind of his more earthy, colorful language. Same essay. Is this not a joyous exchange? The rich, noble, pious bridegroom Christ takes this poor, despised, wicked whore in marriage. Who's he calling a whore? Yeah, first of all, himself, by extension, all of us. Why? Because at one point, all of us have prostituted ourselves to the God of this age, to the things of this world, and the desires of our own flesh. But when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, look what he does. He takes us as his bride. He redeems us of all evil and adorns us with all his goods. That is the gospel that Martin Luther was rediscovering and bringing back into play. And we are, uh, we, we are wonderful inheritors of that. Now, uh, the essay goes on, and there are some implications, and here's an interesting one. This is Metaxas again, paraphrasing Luther. If we as hellbound sinners are redeemed wholly, completely, every part of our lives, then, oh, by the way, he's a monk and a priest at this point, and you can see that that may not last forever. <laughs> then every ugly and vile thing in this world can be transformed and redeemed, so all that is in the world, including our bodies and every corporeal or bodily activity, including our sexuality, far from being things that must be escaped or transcended through our pious efforts, are things to be fully accepted with our open arms, and then with God's open arms, they are fully redeemed. I believe that's true. And I believe that accurately reflects what Paul would have been preaching to the people of Corinth. But can you see how that might be misconstrued, misunderstood, and abused? When Luther says that um, our sexuality is to be fully accepted and embraced with open arms, he's not saying, oh, great, you can just do whatever you want sexually. What he's saying that is that um, when we, we submit our sexuality to Christ out of gratitude for the verdict, for his favor, for him calling us righteousness, righteous through faith in Christ, when we submit our sexuality to him, it is redeemed and even turned into worship. 
Pleasure isn't a curse. It is God's good gift. And it has, it's full of meaning and purpose. It's even worship when redeemed by Christ, when, when, when lived out according to his plan. Ah, but it can be misused and abused. Pleasure pursued outside of God's good plan is dangerous. Freedom in Christ, liberty in Christ can be abused. And what we had in Corinth going on is this toxic combination of an incredibly licentious culture and a skewed view of Christian liberty. You bring these two together, and some of the Christians were going off the rails into hedonism, and it was tearing the church apart. Sin divides and destroys. And the sin that maybe is most effective at dividing and destroying is sexual sin. And sexual immorality was rampant and pervasive and epidemic in Corinth as it is in our culture. And that culture had seeped into the life of the church as it has seeped into the life of the church in the United States. I read this this week. I'll leave out the names. A well-known Alabama evangelist and author was arrested this past April after being charged with child sex abuse. In May, so just a month ago, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee resigned after admitting to a morally inappropriate relationship. Earlier this year, a Memphis megachurch pastor, I think it was in January, admitted he had engaged in a sexual incident with an underage teen. He subsequently resigned. Well, we could go on for a long time with that sad list. And around our speaking team table, uh, all of us were able immediately to come up with a lot of examples a lot closer to home of how sexual sin, sexual immorality had torn lives and families and churches apart. So Paul's going to address the issue of sexual immorality. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul jumps right in, 1 Corinthians 5, first part of verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Sexual immorality translates the Greek term porneia, from which we get our English word pornography. But porneia was uh, the most general Greek term for um, illicit sex. So it covered a lot of bases. Sometimes it was translated uh, fornication. Sometimes it was translated prostitution. But the Greek term in the New Testament covers all sexual activity outside of God's established boundaries of heterosexual monogamous marriage. That's God's good creation intent for marriage between one woman and one man in a until-death-do-us-part kind of relationship. Sex is the most intimate and self-giving of interpersonal relationships, and therefore it is intended for the most permanent interpersonal commitment, which is marriage. That's God's good plan for our sexuality. And he delights in that. It is a good thing, like Martin Luther said, 
to be fully embraced um, and accepted. That is God's plan. So anything outside of the boundaries of marriage is porneia. It is sexual immorality. So that includes sex before marriage, and that includes adultery when married. Paul here is actually going to confront two specific types of sexual immorality in chapter 5 and chapter 6. The first is incest. So we continue to read uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it, says, uh, it doesn't say his mother. It says his father's wife. So this is his stepmother. It's still incest and still considered abhorrent even by the wider culture. So we don't know all the circumstances, but this guy it has an ongoing incestuous sexual relationship openly with um, his stepmom. Okay, that's the first issue. The second issue is prostitution. If you turn over to chapter 6, verse 15... Chapter 6, verse 15, we read this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. So evidently there was an ongoing problem of um, using prostitutes, involving oneself in prostitution in the church. And of course, Corinth was notorious for its moral decadency and especially its temple prostitutes. So Corinth was uh, kind of Las Vegas, New Orleans, Amsterdam, Hamburg, and um, uh, Baghdad, not Baghdad, uh, what's the word? Bangkok, yeah all wrapped up into one. So it was a pretty gnarly place when it came to sexual immorality. Prostitution was a ubiquitous, ever-present, fully accepted part of the culture in Corinth. It was a part of their religious practice. It was a part of their social practice, kind of their climbing the social ladder. You know, these patricians would hold parties, big parties, lavish parties, and it was at these parties that business deals would take place, and a whole part of the party was prostitution, prostitutes. And, and, to, and to be able to climb the ladder and to make it in life and business was to participate in all these kinds of things, including making use of prostitutes. And so this kind of sexual immorality pervaded and permeated their culture just like pornography really pervades and permeates our culture. It's hard to avoid. Back in the old days, you had to pay to get pornography. Today, you got to pay not to get pornography. That's how bad things have become here. But in those days, in Corinth, that was like that almost with prostitution. It was a hard habit to break. And some of those who had come out of the pagan culture into the church were having a hard time making that break, or they were falling back into those habits of sexual immorality. Now, Paul's not going to say a lot about these two particular incidences. He's more interested in their response to sexual immorality, more interested in their attitude towards it. And so there are three responses to sexual immorality outlined in uh, chapter 5 and the end of chapter 6. Here's the first kind of response. You can laugh at it. You can laugh at sexual morality, immorality. Take it lightly. 
Uh, in their case, they didn't just laugh at it or ignore it or take it lightly. They were actually proud of it. They boasted about it. Paul writes there at the beginning of chapter 5, when he talks about this incest, verse 2, and you are proud. You're proud of it. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. You shouldn't be proud. You shouldn't be boasting about this, this sexual immorality that's taking place among you. It's outrageous. Talk about outrageous. Did you see uh, this guy named Dennis uh, Hoff in Nevada? He just won the primary. He's, he's, going to be, um, he's going to be the Republican nomination for a seat in the Nevada State Assembly. But the thing about Dennis Hoff is he's a brothel owner. He runs a brothel. He's a pimp. At the same time, he's an ordained minister who holds marriages in his brothel. And he's running for the political party that has family values as part of its platform. That's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. It's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense what's going on among you guys. How could you be so cavalier, so callous, so arrogant about sin? How is it that you're flaunting your freedom in Christ by saying, oh, look what we can get away with under grace. It's ridiculous, Paul says. It is not good that you should be proud and boastful and laugh at and take lightly these things, applauding your liberty, your tolerance, your license to sin. Paul thinks that this attitude is just as bad, if not worse, than the sin itself. Passive acceptance and outright approval of sexual immorality is contagious. It's going to spread through the whole church and cause division and destruction. All right, let's bring it home a bit. Most of us uh, grew up watching sitcoms. So whether you grew up on MASH or Cheers or Friends or The Office or Parks and Recreation or Modern Family, whether you watched one of those or all of them, you have passively bought into a bill of goods about sexuality that is in absolute contradiction to God's good intentions for sex. And here's the problem. It's not that watching cheers will cause you to go out and behave uh, immorally. But here's the problem. Watching these shows programs us to laugh at sexual immorality. And we become hard-hearted and calloused, and we start to take it lightly. One author wrote, Our one security against sin lies in our being shocked at it. But we're not shocked at it anymore, are we? We've been programmed, trained to laugh at it, to take it lightly, to think very little of it. And that shows just how much we've allowed the world to press us into its mold. How little we understand either the goodness of God's holiness or the goodness of, of the joy God wants us to experience with sex according to his boundaries and his ways, his purpose. It, it shows how little we really get how heinous and divisive and destructive sexual sin is. 
One time, uh, John Wesley, the son, asked his mother, Susanna, uh, Susanna, um, uh, to define sin for him. I love the way she defined sin. Look at this with me. Whatever weakens your reasoning impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin. Certainly sexual immorality does all of those things, but even the attitude of what's the big deal, so what? Doesn't matter. Take it lightly, laugh at it, boast about it. That attitude does all of these things as well. And we got to be careful about that. Can we restore a sensitive conscience when our consciences have been seared? I think it's possible, but it's hard. It takes confession, it takes repentance, it takes changing some of our beloved habits and developing delight in new ones that are God's good ways and intentions. That, so that's one response, is to laugh, laugh at sexual immorality. We better be careful that we don't fall into that trap. But as soon as you start laughing at sexual morality, taking it lightly, boasting in it, it's just a small step to actually participating in it. That's the second response to sexual immorality. That's to join in, join in with sexual immorality. Look at chapter 6. Here we see in verses 12 and 13 how they go from uh, boasting about sexual immorality to defending their right to participate in sexual immorality. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. I have the right to do anything. Paul here is quoting the Corinthians. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial, says Paul. I have the right to do anything, he quotes the Corinthians, but I will not be mastered by anything, says Paul. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So they're defending their right, their freedom, and Paul says to them, freedom is not the right to do anything you want. That is not true freedom. Freedom is the power to be able to do what's beneficial and helpful and considerate and kind to others. Freedom is the power not to give into my every sexual and sensual physical desire, but to be able to rise above those things that want to enslave me and to choose to do what is right and what is good. That is true freedom. I like this quote from G.K. Chesterton. Um, he writes this. They have invented a new phrase that is black and white contradiction in two words, free love. As if a lover had been or ever could be free. It is the nature of love to bind itself. And the institution of marriage merely paid the average man the compliment of taking him at his word. I love you. That should mean I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your best. Uh, so when you say free love, oh, I, have, I am free in Christ, that means I can, I can follow my sexual desires in any direction they take me. That is not freedom. That's being a slave to the desires of your flesh. And it's also undermining the very nature of love. The actual true nature of love is to bind itself in commitment 
and sacrifice for the good of another person. It's not freedom. So are we joining in? Are we joining in with the sexual immorality in our culture? I read a survey this week that said, um, and this was uh, related to single adult Christian evangelical millennials. Did you follow that? (laughs) Single adult Christian evangelical millennials. And this is uh, what they came up with from the survey. Almost 50% of them had been or were at the time sexually active. Almost 50%. Now, it it got a little more, uh, it distinguished a little more in the survey and showed that those who are regular church attenders and read their Bible regularly have a much lower percentage of sexual activity outside of marriage. But nonetheless, as a composite whole, it was pushing 50%. What are the reasons for that? Well, they, they gave the reasons. Let's not, let's not hide the reasons. The reasons are that we live in a hyper-oversexed culture that is shoving it down our throats. The reasons they give is because the whole sex drive is so strong, almost irresistible when you put marriage off to your 30s. That's what it's like in our culture. They say it's, it's hard because of the pervasive mentality, kind of emotional reasoning, we call it, where if it feels good, do it. Just if it feels right, do it. If you, that's what's healthy, is just to go with whatever your gut tells you to do. Those are strong forces in our culture. But it isn't freedom to give in to them. It's a kind of slavery. So, that's the second response. You can laugh at it, you can take it lightly or you can just participate with it, join in with the culture. Paul offers a third response to sexual immorality, and we see that in chapter 6, verse 18. Run from sexual immorality. Run from it. Chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Short, to the point, (laughs) powerful. Run from sexual immorality. That's, That's a present continuing tense that means flee continually and keep fleeing until the danger is past. And of course, for us, that means until we die or Jesus comes back. (laughs) Of course, the classic biblical example of fleeing from sexual immorality is Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife said, hey, go to bed with me, he literally ran away. All right? He's our model for what Paul says here, flee sexual immorality. We've got to see sex for what it is. It's like fire. And within God's good boundaries, it is inviting and warm and good and helpful. Uh, There I am earlier this week up on Lake Michigan and took a little trip and um, made a little fire in the fire pit. And fire in the fire pit is wonderful. You gather around we, we were, we were that's actually Green Bay, Bruce's favorite area of the world, all right? And uh, so that's, that's good. In fact, check out this next picture. Um, we, we, did, we went to a fish boil up there on the peninsula, and that, that fire looks out of control, doesn't it? It's not out of control. The guy behind it is an expert. He said he feeds a 35,000 pounds of Michigan whitefish to tourists every summer. He knows what he's doing. All right, that's not out of control. It's going to produce some lovely, lovely fish dinner for us. All right, how about this fire? Ah! 
That one's a wildfire and out of control, and look how destructive it is. Well, sex within God's boundaries is, is warm and inviting and wonderful, and it's, it's excellent. It's delightful. It's good. Sex outside of those boundaries is dangerous. It's like a wildfire out of control, uh, wrecking destruction in all directions. And so we need, to, we need to recognize that we should run to God's boundaries for sex and run away from sex out of control, sexual immorality. So why run? Why should we? Why run? There are, there are a lot of reasons in this text, but I'm just going to point out three reasons to run. Number one, to escape condemnation. Look back at chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. For my, now, he's talking about this guy who is committing incest. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Should a person who is living in outright, open, defiant, arrogant, callous, cavalier rebellion to God's clear commands have confidence that they are saved? I don't think so. And I don't think the church does this person any favors by letting them be comfortable in this kind of ongoing, outright, public, defiant sin. And so Paul says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Ah, what does that mean? Well, at least it means you got to treat him like an unbeliever. you got to disfellowship him so that maybe he'll recognize his sin and the consequences of his sin and repent of his sin and come back into fellowship. That will mean that he's reconnected in fellowship not with the church but with Jesus Christ because there will be punishment for sin. The purpose of church discipline isn't to punish, it's to help people avoid punishment in the future. Here are some verses that I have written down on my prayer sheet and read several times every week out of uh, 1 Thessalonians. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Oh, what's God's will for me? What does God want? I'll tell you what God wants for you. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be set apart in holiness to him. And Paul says, let me be clear what I mean by sanctified. I mean that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Look at this. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That's sobering, isn't it? How can you take it lightly? How can you laugh? How can you boast? When the Bible says that that kind of sin will be punished, and it's not a rejection of man, it's a rejection of God. And so Paul says, hey, you, you've, you've got to help this person recognize the seriousness of his sin. 
And th this story ends nicely because this person does, okay? And uh, we find out in 2 Corinthians that there's uh, repentance and Paul calls for him to be restored into the church. But we want to run from sin because we want to escape condemnation. Another reason to run from sin is that it's not who we are. It's not who we are. We are new people in Jesus Christ. That's the verdict. We are righteous, and so we need to live like it. Check out uh, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Uh, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Hey, do you remember? I remember back in my day, sourdough was a big thing for a while. You know, and with sourdough, you, you make a batch of sourdough, but you keep some of the dough in like a jar under the sink, which to me was always highly suspicious. <laughs> All right. And you're just like, hey, this has been in the family for three generations. I'm like, well, no, thank you then. You know, I like my bread fresh. Thank you very much. But, but sour, of course, that, back in those days, they didn't have, you, know, you couldn't go down to Owens and buy yeast. So that's what they did. They you know, they would keep a batch of the dough, they would, cook, they would keep it, and they would put that into the next batch, and that would be the yeast that made it rise. And so they, they would always kind of keep the, uh, the yeast going there through the bread. But then Passover came. And in Passover, you got rid of the yeast because it stood for sin, and you made a new batch of dough without the yeast. Not from the old that had continued and continued. You made a new batch without yeast. And that's what Paul's saying. That's who we are. You are a new batch of dough. How about that? You guys are a new batch of dough without yeast in Jesus Christ because Jesus, the Passover lamb, has come. He's died for our sins. And through faith in him, we are cleansed and forgiven and made new. That's who you are, so live like it. That's what he's saying. Run from sexual immorality because it's not who you are. Who you are is a new batch of dough in Jesus there's a metaphor for you. So we want to escape combination. We want to act like who we really are in Jesus Christ. That's why we should run from sexual immorality. And finally, our bodies matter. Our bodies matter. Check out chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 13 to 20. Our bodies matter. Of course, in their culture, they had this very strong dualistic thing going on where they believed that there was the body and then there was the spirit and the body didn't matter. The spirit is what mattered. But Paul's going to say here, the body does matter. And he's going to give a lot of reasons why the body matters. <clears throat> Verse 13, chapter 6. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The body matters. It, it matters because it's not just about biological function. They said, you know, the food, the stomach for food, 
And food for the stomach is just a biological function. So what, whatever, do what you want. And they were implying the same thing. Genitals for sex, sex for the genitals is just a biological function. So what, whatever, do what you want. It's just the body. Paul says, no. The body is more important than that. It's not just a biological receptacle. It actually is involved in the vertical relationship with God. You are a part of the body of Christ spiritually, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. There is a connection. And it's not just spiritual because it is through your body that God works in the world. Your body is the instrument that God uses to accomplish his plan in this world. And you don't really have an option in that. You don't have an option in that because Christ has purchased you with his death on the cross at a very high price. His holy, perfect blood, his death and resurrection purchased us to belong to him, to be freed from slavery to sin so that we could be his people in the world, reflecting him in the world, living for him in the world, doing his work in the world through our bodies. And then he says, not only that, but remember Jesus Christ resurrected bodily, so will you. There is continuity between this life and these bodies and our eternal future in those bodies. And you say, really prove it. Well, in 2 Corinthians, we read this, I think, last week as well. There's a good verse on that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. Whether good or bad, what you do in the body, in the flesh, in this life, good or bad, will be judged. Our bodies matter. Our bodies matter. You can't divide them out like the Greeks did. So how should we run then? Well, we know why to run. There's a lot more reasons, but how run? First of all, with humility and hope. Humility Humility. I'm going to steal some verses from next week's sermon. All right? I confess it, but I'm not sorry for it. <laughs> Chap chapter 6, uh, starting with the, verse, the second part of verse 9. Go up to chapter 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. Okay, so here I am getting all hot and loud about sexual immorality, but let's just remember something. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. All of us were at one time like that. So there's no room for pride or arrogance, either in sin or in holiness. We need to be humble people who graciously work with each other because there's only two kinds of people. Repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners, and if we're repentant sinners, it's because of the grace and goodness and power of Jesus, not because there's anything about us. Remember, we're not a car showroom, we're a car repair shop, and God is transforming us. That is what's happening. So how do we run? Humbly, but with hope. 
Because Jesus' power is great enough to transform and to change us, we have hope and we have lots of models of that transformation and change of the goodness of a holy life. So run with humility, but run with hope. Here's another one. Help each other fight the hydra of pernea in our culture. All right, you know, you know what the hydra is. Of course, all, all these people in Corinth would have known the story of Hercules and the hydra, right? I feel like sexual immorality, all the sexual input in our culture is like a hydra. You know, I got my sword and wham. Oh, you remember what the hydra does, right? You cut off a head and two grow out. So, you know, it's like, ah, ching, I got TV covered, man, because I got my wife. She's got the passcode, and I can't watch anything bad because she's, yeah, I cut off the head of the hydra. Boom, two new heads pop out. It's my, uh, com- my personal private computer and my cell phone. Ah, two more heads. Ah, cut off the heads. I got um, covenant eyes to cover this, and I got accountability to cover that. And as soon as I cut off those heads, boom, 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 boom. There's, there's five more ways for, you know, pornography and, ah, we live in the ugly monster hydra of pornea in our culture. It's, it's awful. Ah, I'm looking forward to death for this one thing, is to be done with the hydra of pornea in our culture, okay? I am not above this thing at all. I need you. You need me. To help fight it, we got to do it together. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have prayer partners to hold each other accountable. Open up your life. Do you have inroads uh, into your life? How can we guard our hearts? How can we change and transform our hearts? Fight clubs coming up this fall. Awesome opportunity to, to grow in this whole area. Finally, we need to be willing to confront sexual sin in the church. One last thing here. Chapter 5, verse 9 to the end. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people in this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. In other words, we need to confront sexual sin seriously. Take it seriously. Do something about it. And you know what the answer to this isn't? Ah, leave it to Bruce. Yeah, that's good. That's his problem. (laughs) You know, he's 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 the counseling guru. It's Bruce. That's what we pay him for. <clears throat> no, you're not following the process. Hey, Matthew 18, you go individually. And in love, talk to a brother or sister whom you know is, is struggling with this. If they don't respond, take some others, then bring it to the leadership of the church, all right? Up to all of us to do this. But please note, please note this, that it's not the church's job to change the outside world. It's not. I love this quote here from a commentator on this whole issue. The church's first responsibility is always to model God's countercultural standards before a watching world rather than trying to impose those standards on a society as a whole. I'm afraid that we've spent way too much time, energy, effort, anxiety, and worry trying to fix the world, our culture, instead of trying to recognize that there's sexual immorality among us. 
And what the world needs more than us pointing our finger and saying, you're wrong, is for us to model for them the goodness of God's ways, the joy of sex within marriage, the unity that we can have as we follow God's ways. That's what the world needs. That's what we need to start with. And it begins with each one of us. So let's do this. And I put that quote up there again from um, Susanna Wesley. And I want you to, uh, Dave's going to come and play a little bit. I want you to read that. And I want to ask, I want you to ask yourself, is there anything in my life that weakens my reasoning, that impairs the tenderness of my conscience, that obscures my sense of God, that takes away my relish for spiritual things? Is there anything that increases the authority and power of the flesh in my life over the spirit? I want you to think about that and ask the Spirit to show you and to convict you and, and even now to confess it quietly to God, to repent of that and turn from it, and, and then, and then to, to find someone that you can talk to about it, to have accountability in it. And then we're going to sing together at the end. Let's pray first. <laughs> 